Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about chest compressions. Sajin, kick us off. So why is chest compression so important? So chest compressions are the most basic, but also the most important element of CPR. Adequate and appropriate chest compressions maximize coronary perfusion pressure, cerebral perfusion pressure, and return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC. And all these things lead to saving lives. I first wanted to just talk about the history of chest compressions. I found it to be really interesting. As early as 1874, a scientist, Moritz Schiff, proved the fundamental principle that in order to restart the heart, the heart itself needed adequate blood supply based on his work with animal models. And then in 1901, the first successful case of chest compressions leading to ROSC in humans was recorded. And this involved a patient who suffered cardiac arrest during an abdominal surgery. They opened the chest surgically, massaged the heart directly, and pulses returned within one minute, and the patient made a full recovery. I think this is crazy. And can you imagine being there for that case where they first first time they've ever revived anybody? I think that would have been amazing to be there. <laughs> I was kind of thinking in 1874, they might have been wearing suits and ties when they were doing these operations too. <laughs> now, by 1909... There were 10 successful cases reported through internal cardiac massage in the operating room. A few years earlier, 1904, a scientist physician, George Kreil in the U.S., showed that external chest compressions could be adequate in animals. However, as the success of the internal cardiac massage increased, the external chest compressions largely fell out of practice for another 55 years. Then came... Dr. William Kuenhoven. He's the father of modern-day CPR. He actually obtained his degree in electrical engineering, but became very interested in the electrical current of the heart. He and his team developed some of the first internal and external defibrillation devices. So to prove that these devices would work, he would induce ventricular fibrillation in a dog's heart and defibrillate it back into a normal rhythm. Now, he noticed that when he would take the large defibrillator paddles on and off the dog, the weight of the paddles would induce chest compression and the dog's blood pressure would increase. He then began to purposely perform these external chest compressions while the heart was in ventricular fibrillation, and it showed that adequate circulation could be maintained for up to 30 minutes by external chest compressions, followed by defibrillation with conversion back to a normal sinus rhythm. He published his findings in 1960. The American Heart Association immediately recognized this as life-saving potential for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest care and began to teach physicians in general. About 10 years later, in Seattle, Washington, a cardiologist named Leonard Cobb launched Medic2, which was the world's first widespread public CPR training program, and they enrolled over 100,000 people in the first two years. And then fast forward to today, where CPR has become an integral part of cardiac arrest care, not only for pre-hospital providers, but also for the general public. Now, almost every patient in cardiac arrest receives chest compressions by medical providers. 
This has increased the overall one-month mortality from less than 1% when chest compressions were not routinely practiced to about 8%. When cardiac arrest is accompanied by bystander chest compressions, survival to hospital discharge increases from 8% to 11%. Now, these numbers are global numbers based on data from over 100 trials, several million patients who suffered out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from all over the world. In developed countries with more advanced life support, this number to uh, hospital discharge can be even higher. So remember, what you do matters. We're talking about less than 1% survival to now over 10% survival. Um, So I think it's really important to know the basics and know them well. I think this illustrates the importance of bystander CPR too, right? Bystander chest compressions. Even if you have no drugs and you cannot bag the person or ventilate them, but just the bystander doing chest compressions really matters. Let's jump into the pathophys. Patio, what do external chest compressions actually do for us? So the earliest theory was that direct compression of the heart between the sternum and the spine squeezes the ventricles and then sends blood to the peripheral circulation. And this is what occurs during internal cardiac massage. However, there were several studies published in the early 1990s where a patient undergoing CPR undergoes a transesophageal echocardiogram during the same time in which they're able to see the heart during ultrasound to see what the chest compressions are doing. And this information um, actually revealed a slightly similar theory that the heart itself does not need to be squeezed, but just increasing the intrathoracic pressure gets blood out of the heart and lungs and into the aorta, carotids, and the brain. Then release of pressure or chest recoil drops the intrathoracic pressure and the vasculature refills with blood from the body. Now, um, let's talk about coronary perfusion for a minute. In cases of cardiac arrest, we typically focus on the primary causes of arrest. Um, So arrest directly caused by heart failing, as opposed to secondary causes such as respiratory arrest or trauma. Now, just like every other tissue in the body, the heart needs its own blood supply. And this happens through the coronary arteries, mostly during diastole. Chest compressions cause blood from the heart to enter the aorta. And during this, I guess, systole, during compression, the aortic valve leaflets can actually open and cover the coronary arteries. So only in diastole does the aortic valve close to allow the coronary arteries to be filled. And so knowing this brings more importance to the act of allowing the chest to recoil because it is during that recoil phase that the coronary arteries are now filling up with blood. Early research showed that there's a direct correlation between coronary perfusion pressure and obtaining return of spontaneous circulation. A 1990 JAMA study showed that at a coronary perfusion pressure of less than 15 millimeters of mercury, patients had a zero chance of obtaining ROSC. Without adequate recoil, not only do the heart chambers never fill with blood, the coronary arteries never fill, and your chance of return of spontaneous circulation goes down to zero. Now let's jump and talk about cerebral perfusion. So survival after cardiac arrest will always be qualified by the level of neurologic function on discharge. This makes sense, right? We want to resuscitate people who can go out and walk and lead normal, happy lives. Now, this can only be optimized if we are optimizing blood flow to the brain. Unfortunately, many decades of research show that getting adequate oxygen to the brain with chest compressions is really hard. 
This is due to the fact that increasing intrathoracic pressure with chest compressions also have the effect of increasing intracranial pressure. If the intracranial pressure, as the pressure in your brain, is too high, blood coming from the aorta and carotid arteries hits a wall of pressure and never makes it actually to the brain tissue itself. Continuous compressions has the effect of gradually increasing and maintaining carotid pressures, which can overcome intracranial pressures and allow for perfusion of brain tissue. Unfortunately, minimal interruptions can drastically decrease carotid pressures, and it can take up to one minute to regain the pressure lost after just a five-second pause. So not only does it affect perfusion, it also correlates with mortality. A large prospective cohort study published in Circulation in 2009 demonstrated that an increased chest compression fraction, this is time spent undergoing chest compressions, divided by total resuscitation time, was independently predictive of better intact neurological survival and pre-hospital cardiac arrest. Remember to always, always continue chest compressions unless you are checking the rhythm or delivering a shock. Chest compressions should be maintained while charging the defibrillator. Compressions should be maintained while transferring the patient from one gurney to another. There have even been studies demonstrating the lack of need to stop for rescue breathing, as we will discuss later in this episode. Sajin, go through techniques. So first, we'll talk about hand placement. Optimal technique is performed when the two hands are placed over one another with the base of the wrist overlying the lower part of the sternum. You want to keep your elbows in a slightly flexed position and minimize movement of the elbow joint. This is because it can get very difficult to control compression depth and allow for adequate recoil by only moving the elbows or the shoulders. It can also be very fatiguing using only the upper extremity shoulder muscles. Use the large muscles of the abdomen, your core, and your back to flex forward and compress the chest, followed by releasing upwards to allow for chest recoil. And next is the rate. The rate we want to push at is 100 to 120 beats per minute. The latest guidelines recommending this upper limit of 120 compressions per minute was based on two observational studies, one which found ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation rates peaked at a chest compression rate of 125 compressions per minute. And the second study, which found an association between an average chest compression rate of 100 to 120 compressions per minute and survival to hospital discharge compared to other higher or lower rates. Now, both of these studies looked actually at EMS personnel and EMS cases during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Let's move on to the depth now. So the optimal depth of chest compression is approximately five centimeters or two inches. And this was highlighted in a really cool study published in JAMA Cardiology in 2019. The researchers obtained data from over 3,600 individuals in the National Institute of Health Clinical Trials Network Database. They collected data from CPR feedback devices placed on the chest during compressions and related that data to overall mortality. They found that the optimal combination of chest compressions was a rate of 107 compressions per minute and a chest compression depth of 4.7 centimeters. They found that if chest compressions remained in this range, overall mortality was 6% compared to only 4% outside of this range. So that's a 50% increase in improvement in mortality. So I think that's really cool. And the coolest part about this was this remained constant regardless of age, sex, presenting cardiac rhythm, how big the patient was, this depth and the rate of chest compressions. You just had to do the same thing for every single person. 
You know, what's really neat about that, Sajin, is a lot of the monitors we use on the calls in the field have a little uh, image on it that will fill and show you the depth. So if you have your monitor positioned right, whoever's assigned to do chest compressions, whether that's, you know, fire personnel, if that's a, another EMS professional, they can watch that and really discuss how important that is in training to get people to watch that and see that the, it's getting adequate depth. Yeah, and it's been shown to directly improve mortality just by focusing on that. So I think it's really important. Now, as we mentioned, it is really important to continue chest compressions as much as possible. Now, when multiple trained personnel are present, the performance of simultaneous chest compressions and proper ventilation using the 30 to 2 compression to ventilation ratio is what's recommended by the American Heart Association. This assumes high quality CPR with minimal interruptions otherwise. However, if a sole rescuer is present or if the provider is reluctant to perform mouth-to-mouth ventilation, the CPR guidelines actually encourage performance of CPR using chest compressions alone. And several randomized trials support this approach, showing no significant difference in mortality. So early studies, um, such as one study in JAMA 2008, actually reported improved survival with minimally interrupted cardiac resuscitation. This was performed in Arizona, where they're training the EMS personnel to emphasize continuous chest compressions with minimal interruption. So they didn't even stop chest compressions to do those rescue breathings. Survival among those patients who followed the new guidelines was 5.4% compared to 1.8% in those who were following earlier guidelines. Then in 2010, a retrospective observational study um, compared survival rates and neurologic outcomes in two groups of rural patients with cardiac arrest. The first group was treated with standard compressions and ventilations, while the second group was treated with compressions only. Among the conventional group uh, with ventilations, 15% survived with neurologically intact survival. Of the compression-only group, they had a 39% survival with neurologically intact discharge. So a pretty big increase. Those are relatively small studies. And then in 2015, there was a large randomized control trial of over 20,000 patients, and they found there was no significant improvement in overall outcomes in compression only versus conventional CPR, showing that intact neurologic survival at discharge was about 7% in both groups. Still, there have been no studies to suggest any increase in mortality with compression-only CPR, and this approach of minimizing interruptions makes sense, especially with our earlier discussion, knowing how sensitive the coronary and cerebral perfusion pressures are. So I think it's really important to remember that you want to really stress continuous, persistent chest compressions, minimizing interruptions. It'll really make a difference. I think this is really important for bystander CPR. You know, you're somewhere not wearing your EMS professional hat or your physician hat and someone goes down and you don't know them. You don't want to do mouth to mouth airway. You can just do compression only CPR. And I think that's really what our public message needs to be to get all of our public aware of just doing compression only CPR. Well, and I think even in the general public, there might be, you know, just from lay people, just a general feeling of maybe not wanting to do CPR because they don't want to do the mouth to mouth part, but even just getting the word out that it's really the compressions that matter, I think is key. For sure. 
Why don't you go through some tips, pearls, Patia, with us? Um, well, again, we're kind of going to be repeating some things here, but studies have really shown again and again that simple and effective chest compressions really make a difference in outcomes. And it can be difficult to maintain a consistent rate, depth, and recoil for the entire duration of a transport. Um, and here's some tips from the literature that may be helpful. Um, so one thing is feedback. Feedback during chest compressions is really important. This can be in the form of a partner, another provider, or even a machine. Um, so like Danielle mentioned, many of the Zoll systems now have monitors you could place on the patient's chest to guide rate and depth. And having this real-time feedback is super helpful to adjust your rate, depth, and recoil. Um, and these have been shown to, again, improve outcomes. So one randomized trial in 2019 reported almost 26% increase in survival to hospital discharge from cardiac arrest with audio feedback on compression depth and recoil. Additionally, an analysis of data from the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation Registry showed a higher likelihood of ROSC when CPR quality was monitored using end-tidal CO2 or diastolic blood pressure. Now, if your system does utilize end-tidal CO2 monitoring, it really is a great tool, and adequate chest compressions should lead to an end-tidal CO2 measurement of 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury, which correlates to chest compressions generating about quarter to a half of the normal cardiac output. ROS can be indicated by a jump in end-tidal CO2 by at least 10 millimeters of mercury compared to previous values. And this is something that we're also using more and more in the hospital now, utilizing end-tidal CO2 during CPR. I find it to be super helpful. And again, all of these feedback tools are just really great so that you know, like, is what you're doing working, basically. So the next thing that may help you stay in the normal compression rate range is using a metronome. I've never really caught on with this one, but there was a study a few years ago that showed turning on a sound that provided a tick at 120 beats per minute would increase your accuracy with maintaining a normal compression rate. Overall, I feel like this is likely to add to the already chaotic environment of a code situation and probably not practical. But there are many popular songs that exist at a tempo of 100 to 120 beats per minute that can be used to mentally keep the compressor in time. Obviously, the most popular one being Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. If you've seen The Office, don't do what Michael Scott does and don't start from the beginning of the song. Make sure you're using the <laughs> chorus of the song. Um, but others also include Sweet Home Alabama, and you can actually even use the song Baby Shark. No, so you, whatever works for you, make sure that you're baby staying shark. on time. You can't say baby shark because now that song's going to be stuck in my head like the rest <laughs> of the morning. <laughs> so let's talk about switching compressors. If you're lucky enough to have bystanders or other EMS professionals or anyone to help on scene, you'll really use them to your advantage. So be honest about fatigue in yourself and don't hesitate to take over for someone who appears fatigued. And if you're the paramedic leading the scene at the head of the, at the, head of the bed, it might be your job to say you're looking tired, let's switch out. Really, you're doing this to help the patient. It's not a sign of weakness to switch out during chest compressions. Try to always switch compressors after two minutes if you have someone available. Don't be afraid to ask for a switch before two minutes if you feel yourself providing inadequate compressions. What about mechanical devices? Now, there is a mechanical compression device called the Lucas um, and another one called Auto Pulse. And a 2015 systematic review 
uh, evaluated five trials, three of them using the Lucas and two that used the autopulse device. And these investigators found no significant difference between these mechanical chest compression devices uh, versus manual chest compression for survival to discharge or survival with good neurological outcome. So that's good news that there are these devices available out there now. I know that we've seen some patients arrive in our system with the Lucas on. Uh, sometimes in our emergency department, for example, we will put a Lucas on a patient. Um, and it can be really helpful when you need your hands to do something else for this patient. Now, there are risks associated with these devices, and one study analyzing postmortem autopsies of patients who'd undergone mechanical compression showed increased rates of rib fractures, sternal fractures, and even vertebral fractures with use of these devices. Now, there is a time and place for these devices, such as prolonged resuscitation, think a hypothermic arrest that you're going to be working on for a very long time to warm up before you can decide what to do next. Another situation is extended transport times or when the physical space to perform adequate chest compressions is just not feasible. And so keep these studies in mind. They have been shown to be useful. And again, these are being utilized in some systems. I'd also like to jump in and say right now personnel is really hard to come around. Right, Lots of people are sick. You might not have all the resources at the scene with you. So if there's few uh, rescue personnel, you might need this device just because you don't have a person to do CPR for you. All right, let's jump to our summary take-home points. What do we want everyone to remember about chest compressions? Sajin. Stick to the basics. Your chest compressions should be at a rate of 100 to 120 beats per minute. You should be pushing at a depth of 2 inches or 5 centimeters and allowing adequate recoil with every compression. Patio. My take-home point is to really minimize interruptions during chest compressions. Even brief pauses can cause immediate and lasting impacts, especially in blood flow to the brain. So just try to keep those compressions going. And my take-home point is, you know, chest compressions really impact survival more than anything else. So really encourage your friends, your family, any non-medically trained person around you to really learn this life-saving technique. Remember, chest compressions only is very effective. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.